So let's look at the wasteland in a real simple-minded way. We have the title. We have the dedication to Ezra Pound. We've already read uh, a short poem by Ezra Pound. Uh, and he's referred to in the dedication as Il Miglior Fabro, which is Italian for the better maker. And then right after that, even before the first book, Burial of the Dead, we have this weird epigraph. The funny thing about epigraphs is, are they inside the poem? Are they outside the poem? On the one hand, they seem to be outside the poem because epigraphs come before the poem starts. On the other hand, they're part of the poem because the epigraph is right there in the poem. So epigraphs are kind of weird. They're both inside and outside a text, a poem, a novel, etc. And I bring this up only to help you keep your eye on something very central to the wasteland. It is a poem that explores exactly this problem, to be both inside and outside, to be on one side and yet also on the other side, or in a sense to be neither inside nor outside, to always be in between. So let's look at the epigraph a little more closely. Nam sibilum quidem cumis ego ipse oculus. That's Latin. Uh, I studied Latin for a little while in high school, but I don't really understand uh, what that means. You know, the other funny thing about this is that when we get to the part that says et cum illi pueri deserent, then we start getting some other language. It looks almost like Hebrew, although it is in fact Greek. So one thing about this epigraph to note is that it represents another very important principle in the wasteland as a poem. That is the profusion, the explosion of voices, right? The polyphony, all of these different voices, whether it's a different language, whether it's a different speaker, whether it's, uh, you know, a voice that comes from the past or from the present, even voices from different classes, as we see later on in the poem, when we're transported to a pub uh, in the East End of London. So it's a post-Babel kind of poem. If you know the story of the Tower of Babel, uh, it's a poem that occurs after uh, the <clears throat> elimination, or at least in the wake of the elimination of any central voice. Too many voices at once, right? The other thing about this uh, epigraph is that it's actually a quote. It's from a really, really old uh, Roman a poem, the Satyricon, uh, by Petronius. I have never read the Satyricon. Don't even really know what it's about, except you know what I've heard it's about, etc. But I do know this, right, that this again points to another important principle in the wasteland, and that is the idea of quotation. Uh, the poem is literally put together out of other texts that are kind of jammed together uh, and collaged together, right? Uh, and this raises uh, a bunch of interesting questions, really, uh, about creativity, um, about uh, order versus disorder, uh, about narrative uh, versus element, about part versus whole.
looking a little bit more at just this epigraph. Uh, on the web, you can look it up, and the quote basically goes something like this, translated into English. I saw with my own eyes the Sybil at Kume hanging in a cage. And when the boys said to her, Sybil, what do you want? That's the Greek, the first Greek part. She answered, I want to die. That's the second Greek part with the little weird accents, etc. What is Sybil's problem? Sybil's problem is that uh, she wished for eternal life and she got eternal life, but mm, she forgot to ask for eternal youth. So even though she lives forever, she in fact ages uh, forever. And in the uh, satiricon, I guess, or from what I hear, uh, she gets kind of becomes more and more shriveled up, like you know, like a tuber, a dried root, or whatnot. She get, becomes more shri shriveled up, tinier, etc. Sybil's problem is that she's both living, she's going to live forever, and yet she's also dead. Right? That is that she's dying. Even as she's living, she's dying. Even as she's dying, she's still living. She's in this kind of horrible, suspended state. And this takes us to another interesting principle or motif in the poem, and that is life and death, the undead, or as we would call these figures today, the zombie. The Wasteland is the first great poem uh, of zombie literature. Remember, right as soon as we start the burial of the dead, that is, and the dead who won't stay dead, in that first section, we have lilacs breeding out of the dead land, life and death combined. Rather, something that is both alive and yet dead, or neither living nor dead, somehow in between. So this is very important, because throughout the poem, you're going to see these zombies, not in terms of the walking dead exactly, but in terms of people, voices, things, uh, scenes, uh, in which, uh, which are trapped between, between death and life, uh, between desire and repulsion, uh, between the modern and the ancient, between the machine and the human, uh, etc. But Sybil's problem points us to yet another very important uh, motif or principle in the poem, and that is the nature of time. Sybil inhabits a really weird temporality, right? That is, she's going to live forever, but her life is not, you know, governed by the same narrative. That is, you live, you enjoy, you reap the fruits, and then you die. Uh, that is, her time is completely unnatural. It's a time that's out of whack. Sybil's lifetime is not in any way, shape, or form a natural span of time. It's pretty freaky and grotesque, right? Uh, <clears throat> and of course, hey, hello, because what does the poem start with? It starts with April, but April is the cruelest month. And we can see even from the epigraph and well into that first section, human time is out of whack with natural time. The time we make as humans, the way in which we make sense of time, measure time, etc., just does not correspond anymore with nature's time, uh, with the kind of natural progress of seasons, uh, years, etc. 
another important principle or motif that this just this one little epigraph points to uh, is the nature of desire in the wasteland. So we can go through the poem, and there's all kinds of moments in this poem of desire, whether it's somebody's desire for the past, uh, somebody's desire for another person, etc. Uh, and the problem in the poem is, right, that like Sybil, desire never quite achieves its object. Desire is always frustrated. Desire is blunted. Desire is turned back on the one who desires. Desire, uh, to be in this state where you want something badly but you cannot have it, or it's always, always out of your reach, is another form of or way of thinking about this is in terms of exile. You want to get someplace, but you can never get there. You want to go back to someplace, but you can never return there. You desire to move towards something, and yet you can never achieve that. And we see these images of exile all over the poem, especially when it comes to sailors. This is, oddly enough, a poem that's really... Uh, involved with the sailing life or enamored of the sailing life and the voyage, right? Fisch, frisch weg der Wind. Uh, there's a lot of sailors in here who are stuck on the ocean, who can't get home, uh, who want to return home, but can't. Think about, you know, uh, Ulysses in the Odyssey or Odysseus in the Odyssey, right? Who wants to get home after the war and can't get home. He's exiled. And that's the narrative of uh, the Odyssey. Here we have a poem kind of like the Odyssey, except Odysseus never gets home. He's always stuck on the sea. Okay. In, in particular, <clears throat> to go back to a minute to desire, think too about the poem as a kind of, has these really kind of uh, romantic moments, or at least comes back again and again to these scenes of men and women, men who desire women, women who desire men, uh, and basically who can't connect, right? Uh, women who can't connect with men and men who can't connect with women. So romance, uh, kind of interrelationships are frustrating. That Even that kind of desire is frustrating. All right. One, finally, uh, one way to think about this epigraph is, and this goes along with the voices, the plagiarism, you know, uh, etc., is that this is a broken image, part of Eliot's heap of broken images. That is, it's a fragment. It's a piece that doesn't fit into a whole. It's a piece that is not integrated into any whole narrative, any whole structure, or whole order. Uh, it's just kind of uh, a mosaic, but a kind of deranged mosaic, and, you know, tile in a deranged mosaic. Uh, and these are the broken images that the poem is composed out of. And Eliot's wager, so to speak, artistically, is can I make a poem out of pieces? Can I make a poem out of fragments? Uh, given that, that's really all I have at hand, are fragments and pieces. Uh, I don't have anything else. And uh, this is, in many ways, the kind of central to, critical to, uh, the modernist aesthetic. Okay.